That great French stalwart of tradition, Arnaud de la Seuss, has observed that the appearance of Our Lady at Fatima was not an apparition in isolation. It followed in a long line of apparitions, including those of Paris Le Monial, the Rue de Bac, La Salette and Lourdes, all of which have occurred in the later stages of this millennium. Nor is the timing of Fatima without significance. Occurring as it did on the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, a date itself worthy of note, being the 200th anniversary of the establishment of Freemasonry in 1717 and 400 years after the religious revolution begun by Luther in 1517. The message of Fatima was not therefore merely a call to repentance and prayer, but had a wider significance, having a bearing on both theological and political matters, with profoundly prophetic predictions in respect of nations and the Church. Of late, however, for a whole number of reasons, some bizarre, and which in themselves could be the subject of a longer discourse than this will be, and perhaps more controversial, the Fatima message has diminished in importance. Why? Paradoxically, because the prophecy has been fulfilled, and the evidence of its fulfilment is every bit as popular today as is its basic call to repentance. The very concepts of sin and repentance are foreign and contrary to, the mod to modern opinion, or to the modern opinion that all are saved, irrespective of belief or practice. Its message concerning the conversion of Russia was embarrassing in the context of the Vatican's Ostpolitik and the notorious Rome-Moscow agreement, and remains embarrassing in the light of the Balaman Declaration, which states that in the search for re-establishing unity between the Orthodox and the Church, there is no question of conversion of people from one church to the other in order to ensure their salvation. Furthermore, devotion to Our Lady is not flavour of the month with some of our separated brethren. Fatima has therefore fallen foul of current ecumenical policy. Furthermore, the third secret, yet to be officially revealed, has been revealed by deduction and is generally acknowledged as having forecast the great apostasy through which we now live. This too is highly unpopular as it conflicts with the criminal optimism of post-conciliar churchmen in the face of the gravest crisis the church has faced. Its political message is especially unacceptable because society now refuses to accept any authority but its own. Its prophetic, its prophetic messages are ignored because many believe that they are from a past era and that we are about to realise the benefits of a consecration which has already taken place, the proof of which lies in the fall of the USSR. Our Lady's warning to Jacinta that the sins which lead most souls to hell are sins of the flesh is unpopular too with the gurus who promote questionable sex education in our schools. And the message's theological aspects have been largely ignored in that the Eucharistic theology and devotion it sought to bolster have been almost universally abandoned. We can therefore say that within 50 years of the message that had already developed a political and religious climate which would make the message of Fatima about as popular as a Tridentine Mass in a post-conciliar Scottish parish church. Thus, while one may often hear the Fatima prayer recited at the end of each decade of the Rosary in parish churches, the message itself is, for all intents and purposes, a dead letter, particularly in this last decade of the current millennium. 
Furthermore, the relaxation of church law concerning apparitions simultaneously unleashed a spate of false apparitions which diverted attention from Fatima and the importance of its message for these days. Or am I wrong? Is it the sceptics who are right? Was Fatima simply a comfort and cause for preconciliar, medieval, obscurantist, triumphalist and superstitious Catholics? Or is the message simply now out of date, no longer valid for the new millennium? I would suggest that all the evidence points otherwise. Indeed, as we enter the, the next millennium, the Fatima message is of even more importance. Why? Well, one would require to be a Cistercian monk not to be aware of the proposed millennium celebrations planned by the government and secular society on the 2000th anniversary of our Saviour's birth. And similarly, the average citizen of our state has as much chance of becoming a Cistercian monk as he has of divining any inkling that the millennium has any Christian significance. The secular millennium is predominantly and almost exclusively secular in both its inspiration and execution. Indeed, it reflects in many ways the state to which the human race has been reduced since our blessed Lord was born 2,000 years ago. Whereas the pre-Christian architects of the Tower of Babel erected the tower with the aim of it reaching heaven itself, they did so in a manner which drew down upon them the displeasure of God, who punished them by the infliction of confusion in their communication. You could say it was a sort of divine millennial bug BC. The post-Christian designers of the dome had and have no desire to reach heaven with their construction. To acknowledge the existence of heaven is to acknowledge the existence of God, a supernatural being. Millennium man is earth-centred, as is the dome. Indeed, it's anchored to the earth. If there is any God to be glorified by the dome, it is not the God of Abraham and Isaac, the triune God of Father, Son and Holy Ghost, but man himself. Not God made man, but man made God. Excuse me a second. It's not a drop of whiskey in that either. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Is not the very centrepiece of the dome at one moment a golden female form and now a golden jewel torsoed humanoid, the second coming of the golden calf adored by the Israelites? Does not this symbol befit a people as receptive to the Decalogue as those who plagued for a false god to be cast in gold that they might worship it? This new God will not be adored, it shall be contemplated. This God is a reflection of self, to be contemplated in a veritable navel-gazing of millennial proportions, as the masses crawl through its entrails to find out how they themselves work. We understand from Professor Billington, the Librarian of Congress, that an early understanding of hell was eternal contemplation of self, the true meaning of hypochondria. In this sense, the millennium dome may well be truly hellish. We are advised that the Millennium Commission's purpose is to assist communities in making the close of the end of the second millennium and celebrating the start of the third. 
it has little to offer us by way of celebrating Christ's birth. Indeed, it specifically refuses to support projects which promote religious belief. We also know that the spirit zone, one of 14 in the dome, had until fairly recently been the least attractive to sponsors. And while it may include some reference to Jesus Christ, it is doubtful whether our Lord will appear as little other than another great founder of a world religion, such as Muhammad, Buddha, or for that matter, Madame Blavatsky. In other words, little other than a sideshow to be viewed amidst the condom machines, which are going to be placed there, and the modern buyers and sellers of this millennial temple, designed to celebrate the greater glory of man and marvel at his achievements. Nor can we find any comfort in the specifically ecumenical approach to the millennium celebration. Briefings, the official documentation service of the UK Episcopal Conferences, announced in its October 1998 issue that Britain's Christian churches proposed a millennium moment. Quote, to herald the arrival of the new millennium with a countrywide lighting of candles, a moment of silence, and the opportunity, the opportunity to make a millennial resolution. The Christian churches, it seems, will deliver millions of candles together with special holders to millions of homes throughout the country to mark the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Christ. When Chris Smith, the culture minister, announced that the millennium candle will be a symbolic gift from the Christian communities throughout the country to mark the anniversary of Christ and that he welcomed, quote, the work that the Christian churches in consultation with the multi-faith Lambeth group had done to develop an inclusive statement which can be shared by all for the next millennium the alarm alarm bell started ringing when anything in in the field of religion becomes inclusive in terms of political correctness it becomes intolerant of anything which might promote the exclusive nature of Christianity and in particular Christ's claim to be the way, the truth and the life and the Catholic Church's claim to be the one ark of salvation. This was only to be fully confirmed when the Reverend Stephen Linus, the Churches Together in England Millennium Officer, announced that the Millennium Resolution, although underpinned by Christian theology, is acceptable to all. While briefings freely admits that the resolution is not a prayer and so does not address God directly, Monsignor Nicholas Rothan, I think that's how you pronounce it, Millennium Officer for the Catholic Bishops, stated, Every line in the resolution is undergirded by Scripture, and we are providing a leaflet to help Christians to use it as a focus for prayer, reflection, and Bible study. We hope that the words will be set to music, used in schools, and be part of many millennial activities. What then does the resolution say? And if it does not address God directly, to whom is it addressed? This is the Millennium Resolution. Many know of it. Let there be respect for the earth, peace for its people, love in our lives, delight in the good, forgiveness for past wrongs, and from now on, a new start. 
With all due respect to briefings, the Lordships and Vincenior Rothen, this Millennium Resolution is a prayer. It is addressed to someone. And because it is not addressed to God, one can only assume that it is a prayer by man to his fellow man, an anti-prayer, the lowering of the heart and soul from God. This is a prayer which befits man made God. It is par excellence the Masonic prayer, a prayer inclusive of all religion and none. Its first demand is respect for the earth, its second peace, its third love, its fourth the good. But it does so without demanding respect for God, the creator of the earth, the foundation of peace, and the very source of all love. It apes the second part of the Decalogue, but wholly ignores the first, without which the second is meaningless. More, moreover, it seeks a new start and forgiveness for past wrongs, without reference to repentance and a firm purpose of amendment, essential prerequisites for both of these. Is it any wonder then, that the presidents of churches together in England should then state several months later, last month to be precise, it is not a substitute for Christian worship, nor was it ever intended that it should be, for it is neither an act of worship, nor is it exclusively Christian. What it does, they say, is to underline the importance of spiritual values in an increasingly secular age and we are delighted the government and other political and faith leaders have responded so positively to it. Truly, this is ecumenia at its worst, an example of a father offering his child a stone instead of bread. True, elsewhere Cardinal Hume asks us to be proud of her faith, but this hardly seems the ideal Christian contribution to a national celebration of this momentous event. This millennial resolution, or godless prayer as I would have it, has been accepted by our church leaders, and it demonstrates par excellence why the Fatima message is more important than ever, and is a microcosmic example of the ills which affect church and state, and which require to be righted if peace is to reign on earth. The message of Fatima is the antithesis of all that the secular millennium celebrations intend to celebrate. Needless to say, we all desire peace. Or do we? Catholics at, least, Catholics, at least true Catholics, seek true peace, which is defined as the tranquility of order. We seek the peace which is given to society, which is obedient to the will of God. A society ordered in accordance with the authentic teaching of his church. For, <clears throat> as Pius XII taught us, upon the form we give to society, either in conformity with or against divine law, depends the good or evil of souls. That is to say the fact that men, all of whom are called to be quickened by the grace of God, breathe amidst the earthly contingencies of life, either the healthy and invigorating air of truth, and the moral virtues, or on the other hand, the morbid and often mortal microbe of error and depravity. My late father, Hamish Fraser, who, when a communist, delighted in the good of the class struggle or the truth of Marxism-Leninism, 
utterly rejected these on his road to the faith. And he was often wont to say that the peace sought by the world was the peace to fornicate and indulge in all manner of sin without any of the consequences. Those desirous of true peace, therefore, appreciate the full significance of the first apparition at Fatima, that of the angel of peace. It was this herald of peace who set the scene, established the ground rules for the pursuit of true peace. His first words were calming, do not be afraid, I am the angel of peace, pray with me. In contrast to the millennium resolution, his prayer was directed to God, just as St. Joan of Arc had constantly repeated, God must first be served. The Fatima apparitions direct man to God, just as our society must be, if it is to avoid, if that is possible, the punishment which will inevitably come its way. The angel's prayer and his message is the millennium prayer par excellence. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope and I love you. I ask pardon for all those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope and do not love you. The basis therefore of the message of peace is the love of God, which is proven, our Lord advises us, by obeying his commandments. In his second apparition, the angel exhorted the children to pray. Pray, pray very much. The hearts of Jesus and Mary have designs of mercy on you. Offer prayers and sacrifice constantly to the Most High. And in reply to Lucia's question, how are we to make sacrifices? The angel replied, make of everything you can a sacrifice and offer it to God as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and in supplication for the conversion of sinners. You will thus draw down peace upon your country. I am its angel guardian, the angel of Portugal. Above all, accept and bear with submission the suffering which the Lord will send you. Herein lies an essential element missing from the millennial resolution. Penance in reparation for our sins and in supplication for the conversion of sinners. By penance and prayer, we acknowledge in this age which has lost the sense of sin that sin does exist that it is an offence against God that is it deeply offends him and lastly that we must make reparation for our sins by doing this the angel says we will draw peace upon our country in his third apparition the angel repeated his initial prayer and then, bathed in an extraordinary light, was seen holding a chalice in his left hand, with the host suspended above it. Leaving the chalice suspended in the air, the angel knelt beside the children and made them repeat three times, Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I offer you the most precious body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, present in all the tabernacles of the world, in reparation for the outrages, sacrileges and indifference, indifferences with which he himself is offended and through the infinite merits of his most sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary I beg the conversion of poor sinners then the angel said take and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ horribly outraged by ungrateful men make reparation for their crimes and console your God here the angel affirms belief in the blessed sacrament and transubstantiation 
he further makes reference to the infinite merits of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which is not without significance, because Lucia at Tweed links the failure to, to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart with the failure of Louis XIV to heed the requests of the Sacred Heart at Paris-le-Monial. Here too, the angel, a creature like ourselves, pleads with us to console our God. A God outraged by ungrateful men, whose outrages, sacrileges and indifference have offended him deeply. God, whose only Son became man and took upon his spotless, immaculate, holy self the sins of all of us. He who was without sin was made to be sin, as scripture puts it. The shame, the loathing, the hatred, the abomination of the sins of all men were heaped upon him, the sacred Son of God, a burden infinitely greater than the pain of his physical suffering and crucifixion. No creature can even contemplate the magnitude of that suffering undergone that we might be saved. And yet, here are men indifferent, ungrateful, unrepentant in the face of this divine suffering. One can therefore understand why the angel should say, Make reparation, console your God. Repentance, therefore, and reparation are the prerequisites for world peace, not the empty pleas of the unrepentant. That the angel of peace should make the Eucharist a central pillar of reparation and consolation is also most significant, especially so when we consider the not-so-secret third secret, whose detail has been teased out by assiduous investigation to reveal a warning of great apostasy. It takes little imagination, however, to consider what the angel of peace might think of modern Eucharistic belief and practice. Recent polls in the USA have indicated that almost 70% of those Catholics polled might find it difficult to repeat the angel's latter prayer with any great conviction. And Bishop Mario Conti of Aberdeen, my own bishop, admitted that the recent Episcopal document, One Bread, One Body, was drawn up because of an increasing lack of traditional devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, which, he said, was possibly indicative of a weakening of Catholic understanding of the real presence. However, such traditional devotion has hardly been bolstered by those self-same bishops, many of whom currently refuse to enforce or obey the Holy See's repeated instructions regarding abuses on the use of extraordinary ministers. Nor did they seek to secure traditional devotion against almost every innovation introduced, often in contravention of liturgical law, but later accepted as a fait accompli by the Vatican, following almost universal episcopal, clerical and lay disobedience. I refer here to such innovations as communion in the hand, communion under both kinds, the removal of altar rails, the abandonment of kneeling before the Blessed Sacrament, not to mention the changes wrought by the liturgical mayhem surrounding the Novus Ordo. One cannot secure traditional devotion if one removes almost every foundation upon which it is built. Even the Holy Father himself was driven at one stage to apologize in his own name and the that of his Episcopal brethren for everything for which, for whatever reason, through whatever human weakness, impatience or negligence, 
and also through the at times partial, one-sided and erroneous application of the directors of the Second Vatican Council may have caused scandal and disturbance concerning, concerning the interpretation of the doctrine and veneration due to this great sacrament. But despite this, we see the abuses continue. Sister Lucia explains that in the first apparition of the Blessed Virgin, they, the children, were moved by an interior impulse to fall on their knees and recite, O Most Holy Trinity, I adore you, my God, my God, I love you in the Most Blessed Sacrament. Clearly then, belief in and veneration of the Blessed Sacrament is an essential part of the inner conversion required of all of us. Clearly such belief and veneration is greatly absent from the Church today. A further Catholic millennial resolution ought therefore to be to increase devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. Father Alonso advises us that in all probability the text of the Third Secret makes concrete references to the crisis of faith in the Church and to the negligence of pastors themselves. Indeed, he refers to internal strife within the church itself and grave pastoral negligence on the part of the upper hierarchy and of deficiencies in the upper hierarchy of the church. In 1957, Lucia concided to Father Fuentes, The Holy Virgin has told me that the devil is waging a decisive battle with the Virgin. He knows what offends God most, and what, will enable him to rapid, and what will enable him rapidly to win over the greatest number of souls. He does everything he can to gain consecrated souls for God. In this way, he will lay hold of them more easily. The message of La Salette too touches on the clergy and explains the current loss of occasions, departures from the celibate life, and even the increasing evidence of pedophile or actively homosexual priests. And this is what Our Lady of Salette said. Priests, my son's ministers, by their, by their evil life, by their irreverences and their impiety in celebrating the holy mysteries, by love of money, love of honor and pleasure, priests have become sewers of impurity. Woe to priests and to persons consecrated to God, who by their evil life are crucifying my son and you. Their sins cry to heaven and call for vengeance. And now here is vengeance at their very doors. For no longer is anyone found to beg mercy and pardon for the people. There are no more generous souls. There is now no one worthy of offering the spotless victim to the eternal on the world's behalf. These are indeed harsh words. But is it all that far from reality today? I cannot, for example, remember the last time I heard a parish priest call upon God to beg for mercy and pardon for the people. Even the dead are buried without such a plea, the presumption being that we're all saved anyway. Also, at an individual level, we may have indeed known or met priests or bishops whose behaviour meets one of these descriptions above. This can induce a mistrust of all priests. Fortunately, for traditionalist Catholics at least, the traditional seminaries, seminaries are bulging with young idealistic traditional priests, and the demeanour and behaviour of traditional priests on events such as the Great Charter Pilgrimage counteracts the false impression given by bad priests. Alas, not all of us 
have access to good priests and there are many still around the great apostasy the great apostasy through which we live is a consequence of lay and clerical abandonment of sound doctrine and the church's attempt to accommodate itself to the modern world the speed in the decline of the faith can only be the result of diabolic planning and execution as Lucia warned us the Holy Virgin has told us the devil is waging a decisive battle with the Virgin. We have the evidence of that before our very eyes. The apparitions of the Virgin, building upon the introduction of the angel, are also, as one might expect, replete with theological and prophetic insights. And contrary to the modern theology of optimism and convergence, are concerned with such preconciliar concerns as sin, hell and conversion. Our Lady's message was quite simple. Pray the rosary each day for peace and the end of, and the end of war. Make reparation for sins by sacrifice. Establish devotion to her immaculate heart. Indeed, one could say that Our Lady was obsessed with sin, sacrifice and the conversion of sinners. One has only to scan the text of the apparitions pray, pray very much and make sacrifices for sinners for many souls go to hell because there are none to sacrifice themselves and to pray for them and also do not offend the Lord our God anymore because he is already so much offended but this was not the obsession so beloved of the psychoanalyst it was simply the obsession of a mother for her children's well-being Cardinal Serriera said that Fatima was a warning cry of a mother who saw her children on the edge of a bottomless abyss. Canon Barthas reminded us that this motherly concern has a dual cause. The superabundance of sin which drives many souls to perdition and also the endemic state of war in which for over a century her children had killed one another and had driven them to invent arms so that the next conflict would be the total ruin of civilization. In her heart and mind, he said, this anxiety has a unique cause, sin, because sin and war are closely linked, the second being the necessary and logical consequence of the first. The salvation of souls and peace going together, as do sin and war, because peace is the normal fruit of obedience to the law of God and of charity. If Our Lady obtained the disappearance of sin from the world, she would have automatically ensured peace. Our Lady's constant call to prayer was not lost upon those who were converted by the very means she proposed. My late father clearly acknowledged that his conversion from communism was the result of prayer. As he recalled in Fatal Star, he had asked Father Anthony Stevenson, S.J., after whom I am named, how does one really know when one has a faith? To which he replied, would you be prepared to lay down your life rather than deny the Apostles' Creed? And my father's answer was, I should be quite prepared to stake my life on the truth of Catholic social teaching, but I cannot honestly say the same in respect of the credo. Well then, said Father Stevenson, that, I'm afraid, is hardly enough. You must pray. 
and he taught my father the memorari. As my father accounts, I prayed with the result that on Friday, June the 4th, 1948, the Feast of the Sacred Heart, I first confessed the sins of my past life and became a member of Christ's mystical body before the Sacred Heart altar in St. Aloysius, Glasgow. As he admitted, <clears throat> a once militant atheist was hurled to his knees despite all efforts at resistance, forced despite myself to ponder seriously on the essential meaning of life, goaded indeed by my own atheistic pride into the effective undoing of my unbelief, lured quite independently of my own will into the company of the one layman in the west of Scotland best qualified to enlighten me on the social teaching of the church, lured moreover at the very moment when his efforts were calculated to be most effective, such were the means by which grace made possible my most willing submission to the church of Christ which had hitherto been to me anathema. Thus it was that the church, no less invisible than that it is alas today, was nevertheless made visible to a one-time atheist in all its supernatural glory and magnificence. And I make no apology for continuing this, this lengthy quotation from my father's book, because it amply demonstrates on a personal level the successful application of the Fatima message. In what are the dearest words to me of all he wrote because <clears throat> they're bound up with the subsequent baptism of me his other children his grandchildren and his great grandchildren these followed in the, in the trail of his, of, his, of his conversion he said for the conversion of any Christ hater must be like Saul's a miracle of grace which is not to say that it need be a rarity and anyone who has been changed from a persecutor to a disciple must be aware that he has not been changed by chance. He knows beyond any doubt that the road he has travelled was the road to Damascus. He cannot but recognise that his adventure on that road was no mere human encounter any more than he can mistake the power which overthrew him and the light which at once blinded him and gave him a sight for nothing but the power and glory of God. He admitted that unbeknown to him at the time of, of this process, a whole host of Catholics were actively praying for his conversion. And he concluded with that phrase, which was to be his watchword, repeated at rallies and in articles throughout the world. These are but some of the reasons why I do not believe that prayer can convert communists. I know it can. That is the immense power which our Lady can unleash with the graces channeled through her. It is a resource which has been largely ignored when it was most needed. It is a resource that we cannot ignore save at our peril as the next millennium unfolds. In her account of the revelation of 13th of July 1917, Lucia, the oldest seer, described the vision of hell shown to the children a vision unacceptable to modernists. You have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my immaculate heart. If what I say is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out. 
Then she remarked, When you see a night illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given to you by God, that he is about to punish the world for its crime by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the church and the Holy Father. To prevent this, I will come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia shall be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me and she will be converted and a period of peace will be granted to the world. This revelation has been fulfilled in its negative prognostications. The specific consecration of Russia to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart has yet to be effected. In August 1931, Sister Lucia informed Monsignor de Silva, the Bishop of Liera, that when she was asking God for the conversion of Russia, Spain and Portugal, it seemed to me that His Divine Majesty said to me, You console me greatly in asking for the conversion of these poor nations. Tell my ministers, given the fact that they are following the example of the King of France by, <clears throat> by delaying carrying out my requests, that they will follow him into misfortune. It will never be too late to have recourse to Jesus and Mary. She later stated that her Lord had intimated they were not willing to listen to my requests like the King of France. They will repent this and will comply with it, but it will be, but it will be late. Russia will already have spread her errors in the world, provoking wars and persecutions of the church, and the Holy Father will have much to suffer. These prophetic warnings of Fatima, relayed by Our Lady and Our Lord, have already unfolded. The Second World War, the Cold War, the wars in Vietnam, Korea, and throughout every corner of the globe, fomented by Russia and her allies, are testimony to this and persecution continues in China as it has in every communist country. Yet the emphasis today is not so much on the fact that a large tranche of the prophecy has been realized. It is inclined to center on the apparent fall of communism, and this in turn is held as proof of the conversion of Russia. This is to ignore the evidence that whatever state Russia may be in now, she has already spread her errors throughout the world. What we have witnessed over the past 80 odd years since the Russian Revolution has been the spread of Russia's errors like a raging contagion. And what are these errors? These are merely a variation on the theme of those revolutionary doctrines which manifested themselves during the French Revolution. The predominant error which Russia unleashed on the world was not so much atheistic communism as organized naturalism, for the former is very much the product of the latter. As Professor Billington remarks, if the French Revolution was the incarnation, the Russian Revolution was the second coming. But whatever its place in the pecking order of revolution, the essence of both these manifestations of revolution is a rejection of God and the supernatural in the affairs of men. The great Cardinal Pierre Poitier defined naturalism thus It is more than a heresy It is pure 
undiluted anti-Christianism. Heresy denies one or more dogmas. Naturalism denies that there are any dogmas or that there can be any. (coughs) Heresy alters more or less what God has revealed. Naturalism denies the very existence of revelation. It follows that the inevitable law and the obstinate passion of naturalism is to dethrone our Lord Jesus Christ and to drive him from the world. Naturalism strives with all its might to exclude our Lord Jesus Christ, our one Master and Saviour, from the minds of men as well as from their daily lives and the habits of people. In order to set up the reign of reason and of nature. Now, wherever the breath of naturalism has passed, the very source of Christian life is dried up. Naturalism means complete sterility in regard to salvation and eternal life. There is no evidence to suggest that post-Soviet Russia has wholly rejected naturalism. Its conversion, if any there is, seems to be from communism to western liberalism with scarce a glance at the baptismal font. And as Gary Potter says, what difference does it make after all if every communist party in the world is declared officially dead as long as liberalism continues to prevail? Communism was never anything except an extreme expression of liberalism. The communist proclaims that God does not exist. The liberal lives as if he does not exist. The difference between them is simply the difference between announced atheism and practical atheism. And Solzhenitsyn too recognised this, remarking that the split in the world is less terrifying than the similarity of the disease afflicting its main sections. One could say that the difference is merely one of approach. The end product is is invariably the same. Indeed, one wonders whether the net effect on human suffering in the long term, and in this I include the supernatural long term, will be greater from communism or liberalism. In a communist state, believers are openly persecuted, and this often gives rise to a spirit of resistance such as that seen in Hungary and Poland. Whereas in a liberal society, the believer is immersed in a sink of pollution so pervasive that only the holy saintly can hope to resist it entirely. And even those who may resist the omnipresent occasions of sin are often unable to resist paying their respects to the golden calf of modern democracy, the means by which naturalism is given expression. Certainly Satan does not give a jot about how he drags souls into the abyss. As Sister Lucia told Father Fuentes, The Most Holy Virgin has told me that the devil is waging a decisive battle with the Virgin. And in this battle, Satan does not care which type of organized naturalism is used to deliver the results he desires. And are we to deny that the most effective corruption is that in which the sinner cooperates most willingly? This then was the principal error which Russia spread. Past tense, she has already spread it throughout the world. It did so in a particular way through the propagation of atheistic communism, which is not yet dead. Nor are the seeds of its revival sterile. The rampant, lazy fair capitalism and liberalism, which led the industrial masses into the hands of revolutionaries, 
continues to inflict untold misery in many nations in the pursuit of unlimited profits and ever lower wages. A communist apparatus still exists in Russia. The communist parties polled the highest percentage of the vote in the 1995 election and it is the predominant party in the Dua. Russian society is riddled with the old nomenclatura, none of whom has faced trials for crimes against humanity. And ex-KGB officers now are bound in the higher reaches of government. And only last week, Sir Charles Powell, former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, remarked concerning the Russian arms for Iraq affair, there is a careful line to tread between putting pressure on Russia to secure acceptable international behaviour and precipitating its collapse into economic and political chaos. This latter could lead to extreme nationalism or a return of the communists. The risk of renewed Cold War, even without communism, cannot be discounted. Neither can it with communism. The most populous nation on earth, China, is also in the grip of an oppressive communist regime which continues to persecute Christians and nor is North Korea a benign state. The USSR harnessed every institution in its drive towards atheistic communism. All became transmission belts for the party, whether youth organizations, sports clubs or churches. The churches became the tools of the KGB both to promote a false peace movement which found willing supporters among clerical dupes in the West but also as a means of subverting the Catholic Church and we even know it manipulated Pope John XXIII to prevent communism being discussed at the Second Vatican Council. But Russia's errors also include schism and Islam. The Eastern Schism, which dates back to 1054, has long been a great wound in Christendom. And yet the conversion of Russia might have been closer to hand than one might think. Gary Potter, who I mentioned before, an American writer, in a recent article, The Conversion of Russia, indicates that, that Tsar Alexander I may well have converted in the early 19th century. His predecessor, Tsar Paul, had obtained permission from Pius VII to reconstitute in Russia the disbanded Jesuit order, and this coupled with the influence of French émigrés from the French Revolution and the influence of Joseph de Mestre upon, the, upon Tsar Alexander may have led to the Tsar's conversion and perhaps then his people. Professor Billington, the, the librarian of Congress, Potter tells us, remarked that de Maistre was fascinated by the possibility of converting Russia to Catholicism and launched a program to that end. In 1813, the Tsar was said to have acknowledged that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Unfortunately, Napoleon's invasion of Russia led to an anti-Western, anti-Catholic reaction. The Jesuits were expelled and de Maistre left in 1817. Potter does tell us, however, that the Tsar in the last year of his life sent a personal emissary to Rome on a secret mission to procure a high-ranking cleric to instruct him in the faith with a view to his entering the church. Alas, we do not know the success or otherwise of that mission. One can only surmise what effect the conversion of the Tsar may have had on Russia. Alas, the return of Russia to the faith is still to be realized. Enough about Russia. Naturalism in the West has made itself manifest through modern democracy. 
the system of government which recognizes the citizens as the sole source of authority has made gods of men and it finds its root in Satan's non-serviam which echoes in almost every parliamentary chamber in the western world. The consequences of disobeying God are always disastrous. They have been since original sin and will continue to be, uh, will continue to be so until the world ends. But just as the effects of original sin have damaged us and remain with us, so too is that temptation of the Garden of Eden ever held before us, you shall be as gods. And it has gained such a strong grip on our collective Western imagination that its modern manifestation, modern democracy, seems part of the natural order of things. The degree of man succumbing to that temptation to be as gods is in direct proportion to his abandonment first of the church's teaching, then of the Decalogue, and ultimately the very rudiments of the natural law itself. Does anyone doubt that we have reached such a depth? In the moral field, the Rubicon passed with contraception has led to abortion and now euthanasia, and it is about to transcend to the auto-cannibalism of cloning embryos created from one's own tissue to serve as tissue-generating banks to replace our decaying or diseased bodies, a truly fiendish idea if ever there was one. Am I exaggerating when I state that man now considers himself as a god? Listen to some of the proponents of the modern liberal democratic system. And the French are best at this. Ferdinand Buisson, a Protestant. Our laws, our institutions, are not founded on the rights of God, but on the rights of man. They do not operate through the grace of God but in the name of the nation and with a purely human authority. Secularism is the corollary of popular sovereignty. In another text he writes, The man-citizen is God and there is no God other than the man-citizen. While not all politicians are quite so blunt, the facts are that the declaration of the rights of man to which most Western countries subscribe the principle of sovereignty rests essentially in the nation and the law is founded upon obedience to the creator but is, and the law is not founded upon obedience to the creator but is rather an expression of the general will of the citizens as Arnold de la Seuss states if the principle of all sovereignty resides essentially in the nation this amounts to saying that no other sovereignty exists other than national sovereignty the nation and the state which governs it will not therefore require to take account of the sovereignty of God nor that of the church from which flows the following consequence the civil law will be established without reference to an original transcendent divine law natural and supernatural it will have primacy over the moral law of religious origin and this is the theory which is called juridical positivism Jean Madurin states that this principle of all sovereignty residing in the nation is the only dogma of the modern world and that modern democracy is the political translation of neither God nor master a perfect summary indeed of Cardinal P's definition of naturalism alas we Catholics are as prone to this modern democratic disease as our fellow citizens 
we sometimes think that we can appeal to the good nature of our fellow citizens to outlaw abortion, curb divorce. The truth is that if we think like this, we are almost suggesting that the moral law is something which can be the subject of a vote. Whereas we believe, or we ought to believe, that the moral law is immutable. It is the church which decides upon the morality of acts, not parliament. It is parliament's duty not to transgress the laws of God, from whom it derives its authority. As Pius XII stated, it must be clearly stated that no human authority, no state, no community of states, whatever be the religious character, can give a positive command or positive authorization to teach or to do that which would be contrary to religious truth or moral good. Such a command or such an authorization would have no binding force and would remain without effect. No authority may give such a command because it is contrary to nature to oblige the spirit and the will of man to error and evil or to consider one or other as indifferent. Alas, we live in the dying remains of a liberal Protestant culture. We may have helped delay the onset of full-blooded naturalism, but we too are fast becoming a curiosity in this post-Christian neo-pagan age. We have become so because essentially we failed to convert our nations. We failed because we accepted to live within the bounds of this modern democratic system which recognises no authority but its own. We failed to recognise that the nation's Christianity was a thin skin and that tolerance was simply a device hiding a political philosophy and apparatus which recognising no authority but its own could equally be anti-Christian and intolerant in the twinkling of an eye. In the late 60s, the Abortion Act was enacted, and since then, millions have died. Euthanasia, too, is practiced with the blessing of the law. There is now literally no limit to what may be done in the name of the people. We are reaping the results of failing to establish the social kingship of Christ. Our society is obsessed by sex, is immersed in immorality, drenched in the blood of the unborn. Many of our young people are materialistic, faithless and shameless. The perverted are afforded the status of the normal. Mothers abandon or are forced to abandon their children to strangers that they might work. Workers are increasingly a resource to be used in, in, in much the same manner as other, as other resources, exploited, expended or replaced. Welcome to the brave new world of the dome. Welcome to the atomized, individualistic, hedonistic, Christless society. A society which has no need to be punished because it is creating its own hell on earth. Did not our Lady of Salette state that God will abandon men to themselves? The watchword of such a society is not that of Garcia Moreno, freedom for all but evil, but rather freedom for evil for all. Only a few days ago, Cardinal Hume offered points of reflection for the millennium. He opined that to be different in the next millennium, we need a society that, among other things, protects and promotes marriage and the family, abolishes abortion, respects the environment, looks beyond the here and now to rediscover spiritual values. 
Some of these are indeed laudable, but they can only be realized in a society which is substantially different from the one in which we live. As we reach the end of this millennium, our society is founded upon man and man alone. We need a society which is based upon God, a society which acknowledges and respects the natural law, the Decalogue, and the authentic teaching of Christ's church. We need a society which in every respect is organically imbued with the spirit of the gospel. That is the essential message of Fatima. It is a society which cannot be attained without conversion. Not only conversion of individuals, but conversion of families, conversion of intermediate societies, and conversion of nations. Cardinal Hume asked wrongly, it seems to me, that we insist that the Archbishop of Canterbury be invited to pray to God publicly and in the name of the whole nation at midnight as we usher in the new millennium. Personally, I will insist on nothing of the kind. However, I think we should insist that the cardinals and bishops of these islands plead for God's mercy for the outrages, offences and indifferences of men towards our God and our Lord and that at midnight, after a collective act of repentance in which we might all join, they, in conjunction with the Holy Father and the bishops of the entire world, specifically consecrate first Russia and then each of their own nations and dioceses, both to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Let them pledge, moreover, to do all in their power to re-establish the social kingship of Christ and to draw all men to the saving power of the Holy Catholic Church. Now that would be a real conversion. That would signal an end to apostasy, false ecumenism, and that accommodation with the world which has had such disastrous consequences. Such an event could only arise as a result of grace, the grace which the Blessed Virgin promised at Fatima to those who accede to her demands to pray the rosary, to repent, to sacrifice for the sake of sinners and to consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart. Will the year 2000 produce the graces it could or will the demands of the Virgin of Fatima remain unanswered? Only time and God will tell. But we do know one thing. In the end her immaculate heart will triumph she shall crush Satan and his minions beneath her foot. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. a great deal of publicity uh, called I think uh, Two Hours with Sister Lucia it might have been one hour two, I think it was Two Hours with Sister Lucia uh, in which uh, she's reported to have uh, said that um, the 1984 consecration did fulfil Our Lady's requests and that uh, uh, Russia is in process of being converted uh, 
I'd like to ask you about that and uh, uh, coupled with that uh, uh, what, what is your view of uh, Father Gruner's uh, apostolate uh, where he, uh, he he opposes this uh, book and uh, uh, he opposes the idea that uh, the 1984 consecration was valid and says we must still campaign for uh, the collegial uh, consecration of Russia to be carried out Well I've been away from affairs for about two years uh, as most of your apropos readers will probably have gathered and my opportunity for, for reading uh, up in many of these matters has, has been diminished but I think I, I did manage to scan the latest uh, publication by Father Gruner regarding these, um, these, this so-called interview with Sister Lucia, I think it was Joseph Ferrara who, who, who wrote the articles, a, a young American lawyer, and it seemed to me that he showed that, that, that these interviews um, very well might be bogus. Um, and I think it's best if you if you read the you know the study yourself if if you if you have access <coughs> to the Fatima Crusader. As for Father Gruner's um, apostolate, I'm in favour of any apostolate which uh, seeks to spread the message of the, the Fatima message. Uh, my own father uh, was of the opinion that the collegial consecration was carried out in, in 1984, and I think most of the serious students of Fatima were of that opinion. Uh, if Sister Lucia is allegedly uh, backtracking on things she's, she's said before, then I think we have to ask who, who's suggesting that she backtracked, what is their agenda? And I think in the, in the current climate of the church, obviously, um, <clears throat> there, there are vested interests in suggesting that Fatima is not a true apparition. I regard it as a true apparition and I regard, as you've heard from what I've said, that its message is as pertinent today as it was in 1917. Uh, Michael? Yes, I think you made a mistake there, Tony. I think you said your father believed that the consecration was carried out. No, it hadn't been carried out. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Everyone will get confused when you hear the recording. My father believed it hadn't been carried out. That it had not been carried out. Yeah. Scottish pronunciation. We don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> You're clearer often. Um, who'd like to go next? Uh, right, I'll take Bernadette next as you've gone once, Hugh, and then come back to you. Well, as, as you probably know, uh, Father Gruner is a very controversial priest, and um, uh, how do you how do you see him as being a, a faithful priest and obedient? Uh, to Rome because somebody said to me that uh, Padre Pio uh, suffered a great deal but he was always strictly obedient uh, to his superiors no matter what they had asked him to do uh, whereas uh, the inference was that uh, Father Gruner isn't obedient yes um, thank you 
And specifically, when I, when I started my speech, I made reference to all sorts of things that uh, are matters concerning Fatima, which are likely to detract us from the, the message, and this is one of them. <laughs> now, whether that's a design or not, I don't know. Um, <coughs> the question of, of, of Father Gruner's status, again, is subject to much argumentation, and in, in, the, in the present state of the church, it's, it's very difficult at times to determine whether someone is being disobedient to uh, the authority of the church or not. I think you have to go back and examine under canon law. I'm not a canon lawyer, so therefore I can't determine whether Father Gruner is or is not being disobedient to, uh, to, the, to the authorities in the church. Uh, all I can say that I've, I've read uh, several studies of, of the matter, I think over a year ago or more, and it seemed to me that there was a case to answer, uh, that perhaps he, he, he had been treated harshly and that I understand, I may be wrong, uh, that he has presented a case to Rome uh, for investigation. But as I say, these, these matters to some extent, and maybe for, for very good reasons, uh, help to confuse the essential message of Fatima. The message of Fatima is not about Father Gruner. Father Gruner is hoping to spread the Fatima message, as, as should all of us who, who believe in, in what happened in 1917. Uh, and these are, these are distractions, unfortunate distractions for those who are involved in them. But I don't think they should detract us from the essential message of Fatima. And I would like to concentrate on the message of Fatima rather than the side issues which uh, are better perhaps discussed by canon lawyers. <laughs> <coughs> right, I'll take you for the second time and then anybody else like to go after him? <coughs> Very good, Jim. Um, a different subject now, Mr. Fraser. Can you please define again naturalism and you could give us one or two or even three definitions of naturalism, thumbnail definitions to, uh, on which one can easily expand, of course, but the basic thing, and including the one of the French, uh, you mentioned French um, definition, I think. Was it from Cardinal Pierre? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think I'd have to dig that up again, wherever I've put it. <laughs> I think uh, Jean Madron summed up neither God nor Master basically that society is organized without reference to uh, to God or to um, or to any supernatural influence whatsoever uh, sorry could you wait for the microphone Hugh otherwise your question will be recorded And would that be the same as liberalism, or is liberalism different to naturalism? I think liberalism is a form of naturalism, especially as it's as it as it panned out in, in France, or even as it's panning out here. I'm not talking about the political liberalism. I'm talking about liberalism in our society, where um, states uh, define uh, what is law without reference to the divine law without reference to the natural law without reference to the Ten Commandments the Decalogue so man determines his own law without reference to his higher authority um, Michael and then Harry and then the gentleman in the back row well, I think you could say that the 
all the nations in, in the Western world are in a process of self-annihilation due to the collapse in the birth rate. Father Paul Marx said that there are only two countries in Europe now that are reproducing themselves, which is Malta, which is, and that's only about 2.4 children per family, just over the 2.1 that's necessary, and uh, Albania, which has 2.5. Even Ireland isn't reproducing itself now. And supposedly Catholic Italy has the lowest birth rate in the whole Western world, 1.5. And so, like, you're getting this big problem in Germany, they're mentioning they've got half a million Kurds there. They, 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 I think they have 340,000 abortions in Germany now, which is more than the live births. We, we, so, 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 I think you can say the, the, the whole of the Western world is a process of self-annihilation. I mean, the other thing is that the Europeans are not reproducing but the immigrants that they have brought into the country, and especially uh, Muslims, are increasing in numbers. And in Europe, they, they very well might soon outnumber the Christians, or <laughs> Christians in inverted commas. Um, Harry, and then the gentleman at the back, and then Ali. Yes, um, Anthony, uh, in, in the course of your talk, you spoke uh, quite... Uh, uh, condemnatory of uh, uh, Western democracy uh, is it your belief that um, uh, democracy as such is so uh, intrinsically uh, linked with uh, liberalism and naturalism that uh, a Catholic can't be a Democrat and, uh, and do you therefore espouse some more uh, authoritarian <laughs> kind of regime well, I suppose an authoritarian regime in the sense that any regime has got to be based on some form of authority. I believe that any society must be based on the authority of God because all societies are in effect derive their authority from God and the, the authority that they exercise should reflect God's love. So the sort of authoritarian regimes, the totalitarian type of, of state, no, I'm not in favour of it. But a society which is based on the law of God, which respects the moral law, the natural law, and the decalogue, yes, I'm in favour of that type of state. Now, all, and one of the, the major articles in the next apropos is actually on this subject. It's a study by, by two Frenchmen, one of whom was mentioned in, in, the, in the speech, Anna de la Seuss and uh, Michel Berger, and they examine the whole concept of democracy. And uh, modern democracy, uh, I would say, I would say that no Catholic really could be a modern a modern democrat. They can't. I don't think any Catholic can recognise that society <coughs> uh, derives its authority from its citizens. Uh, that's rejecting the supernatural. It's rejecting God. But there are forms of democracy which are acceptable. Uh, there's the organic, there's what was called organic democracy, which is based on the the, the intermediate bodies in society, uh, and, and really uh, perhaps be too difficult to, to go into it in great detail here. But it is a democracy that respects uh, the law of God. Democracy is exercised in the church. Uh, the, the pope is chosen by a form of democracy. Uh, the, the heads of religious orders are chosen by a form of democracy so all forms of democracy 
are not necessarily evil. But there are some forms of democracy, those that which do not respect the, the moral law, those that do not respect any authority but their own, I regard as, as not capable of support by, by Christians. We may have to use them on occasions, but I certainly don't necessarily approve of them. Right, the gentleman at the back, uh, Stephen. I'd like to thank Mr. Fraser for his very interesting talk. Um, our lady at La Salette said that Rome would lose the faith and become the seat of the Antichrist, and surely the, all the sorts of things, the abortion and all the other things, are as a result of this having happened, which Our Lady also forewarned at Garabandal, that uh, the, because of the, the start of the Second Vatican Council, the uh, bishops were leading their flocks and, and, their, and themselves to hell. Since that time, we've had a succession of four anti-popes, who have taken away not only the Mass, which Catholics generally depend on for their spiritual health, but most Catholics, I think, have been too um, sleepy to notice that in 1967, with the introduction of the last incarnation of what could possibly be seen as the traditional Mass, it was invalid in its English version, and subsequently to that, the Novus Ordo, which is actually Protestant in conception and is not the Mass, that surely the, 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 the fact of this has something to do with the evils which we're living through. Well, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that interpretation. Uh, I don't believe that, however much I may dislike the Novus Ordo, I don't necessarily, I don't believe that it is not, that I believe it is a mass, the mass. And therefore, you know, as far as, and I, nor do I believe that the popes we have had, the last four popes have been anti-popes. I believe they are popes. I believe I don't necessarily believe that everything they have done is right. But then again, we have had in the past uh, that did not necessarily make them invalid popes. I think um, I don't subscribe to the to the Sedificantis theory. Um, Ali. Do you, do you think the consecration will actually be done in the end, or just like, um, you know, because there's more and more importance being paid to other things within the church at the moment, and I think the consecration itself, you know, is not really taken seriously by the majority of people. It hasn't been taken seriously. I think it ought to be taken seriously. Do you think it will be done in the end, though? I don't know. All we know that is in the end, our Lady's Immaculate Heart will triumph. Now, whether it will... I, well, I think the message does say it will be done, uh, from what I remember. <coughs> that the Pope will do it, and Russia will be converted. It, it is said, so... Yeah, it will be done, but it will be late. Like the King of France. Um, just a historical detail. The 1967 Abortion Act had its second reading on July the 13th, 1967, which was 50 years to the day that Our Lady prophesied, showed the children hell, said that more children went there, for sin more people went there for sins of the flesh than for any other reason. How very ironic in the Mother of Parliaments that such a date as the 13th of July, very auspicious, should actually be the day when the Mother of Parliament started aborting its own children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Full of significance.
Mm. Well, you, Stephen, you just said that the Abortion Act uh, was introduced in 1967. What, what people forget is that abortion was available in England prior to that Act. What are you thinking of? Um, abortion under certain circumstances? Yes. Mm. Not, you don't mean illegal? It, it was legal. Yes. And another problem arises in, in Ireland as well. And a priest told me this years ago that, uh, in, that say, if somebody had been raped, that if, if we were taken to a hospital within a certain time limit, that the material there could be removed. So I don't think that is quite moral either. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, a theologian, um, not a moral theologian, but I understand that under some circumstances where a rape has occurred and fertilisation has not occurred or may not have occurred, then uh, what what is being removed is not uh, a human life. It would have to be where it hasn't occurred. Yeah, but it hasn't occurred. Not where it may not No, occur. exactly, it's, but so it's not occurred. Yeah. It yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, the lady here, um, and then Dennis. Is. Um, wh when we think of the message of Fatima, we often think, you know, of the war that was prophesied and that. But I think the, a lot of the evil is overlooked. And like when the Abortion Act came in, the Christians in this country were asleep anyway. Um, but I think there's another evil coming now, and I think, as you mentioned in your job, you might know something about it. This, this. Um, uh, the gene um, industry and I don't think people are aware unless you're affected yourself or you were in a situation uh, many years ago a chap called Terry Moore I don't know if you knew about Terry Moore he had hairy cell leukemia and when he, he was he lived many years and when he was um, asked to donate his spleen to the university for, because he was, un he was rather unique he had these immortal cells he found out he did not own his cells and his spleen. The doctor who was um, treating him had um, patented his cells, and um, he'd made, he became a millionaire. The same now, Tim Sainsbury has got this gene, which apparently is so important in the Amazon jungle, is important to all of us. And I mean, you eat a tomato and you've got fish genes in it, or you eat, you know, it is, I think this is an invidious evil that is coming as well. And, you know, even it, I was reading in, um, a book in a, a youth magazine recently that, uh, that um, we need international laws on this. But I do think that we are not keyed up to this at the moment. It's just a matter of avoiding this food or something. But I don't think we realize that a few men in the world are going to own these genes and patent them and getting very every time you buy something a tomato paste off the shelf you are putting money into Tim Sainsbury's pocket it's no good saying he's given it into a trust it's still his and um, when, when I first um, had to attend the hospital I was told nine tenths of my genes are owned by the biggest drug company in the world I don't own them so you know, people outside the medical world or people who are not ill I don't think they realise what's going on and I don't myself, I can't get any information or anything written about it but um, it seems a bit scary to me and I don't know what your impression is I mean 
again, I'm, I'm not a geneticist. Um, I'm involved in, in, in food safety from time to time, but um, and this is a question that vexes the, the food safety industry as well. And as we know, it's it's, it's causing all sorts of concerns. I'm not, I'm not so much concerned about about that side of things. Uh, I'm worried slightly that genetic engineering may take us into fields that we don't. That we won't ultimately be able to control, but that's a matter that, that science can address um, if it respects the natural law. Um, however, it's a lack of respect for the moral law that concerns me more than anything at the moment. And, and this question of cloning human embryos as as, as spare body parts uh, for the for the sick or the dying or the diseased. Uh, that is really worrying and it, it looks as if it's happening right now and also the, the cloning of, of human beings uh, which looks as if it's happened already in Korea uh, and may be happening in, in hidden laboratories heaven knows where uh, and, and also this question of owning bodies I think I saw something in the telegraph this morning I, don't have a chance to, I thought I saw something about a a doctor wanting, uh, stating that uh, the body should become the the the, the property of uh, is that right? the state. Yeah. Um, so there we have. Sorry, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for all your contributions from the floor. You've made this a memorable. You've helped to make this a memorable evening and a very full and packed evening. But thanks, of course, most of all to. Anthony, who's come a long way to uh, speak to us tonight, to instruct us tonight, I don't think, and to inspire us tonight, I don't think I have ever heard a, a clearer explanation of certain things. I've not heard as clear an explanation of the errors of Russia, or of the setting of Fatima in its historical context. Um, if we do not wake up to the urgency of the situation, it will not be Anthony's fault. Anthony, thank you very much indeed. I hope it's not long before you come again. Thank you. Thank you.